yesterday, um, someone asked me if I was going to be talking about the riots and the unrest and the protests and everything that's going on. And at the time that he asked me, I wasn't planning to because it's Pentecost. And I wanted to talk about Pentecost. I wanted to talk about the things that we have been leading up to and, and the, uh, the culmination of the, of the Easter season liturgically. But as I was watching more of the coverage uh, yesterday, I realized that it wasn't something that I could not talk about. I had to at least address it, just as, as Frank uh, needed to address it. And I can't help thinking that uh, well, we're just kind of lurching from one calamity and one trauma to another lately. This whole last year or two years, you know, from politics to pandemic and I guess back to politics and now to police and then to protest. It's just been one thing after another. It's been a, it's been a tough stretch for us as a, as a people, as a nation, I suppose as a world. This thing, a lot of these things are not just limited to what's happening in the United States. And I can't help reacting. I don't know about you, you watch these images, and um, whether it's the initial image that started all of this protesting, or it's the protest and the riots and the looting themselves, but things come up, you know, unbidden. It's not my fault. You know, the revulsion and the fear and the anger and, and just the dismay and sometimes the disgust that comes up. It's just all there. But as I continue to watch and just see more details of what's going on, I realize that there are voices speaking in between the poles of what's going on here. You know, what gets all the news is always the extremes, always the polls, always, always what really is going to sell tickets and put eyes on sets. But in between those voices, if you're paying, in between those polls, there are voices if you're paying attention. And those voices are trying to call us back to sanity. And I've been really impressed with those voices because they come from all across the spectrum. They come, they're, they're all different races and creeds, but they're saying the same thing. They're trying to call us back to sanity really impressed with the mayor of Atlanta and what she had to say, and others like her. You know, there have been protesters that have been interviewed on the streets, and yes, they're looking for justice and they're looking for reform. It's needed reform in our system. But at the same time, they're saying, this is not what we're about. This looting, this violence is not what we're here for. In fact, it is, it is obliterating our message. And they're trying to say, yes, we are here specifically to talk about something that needs to be talked about and trying to get it into the national consciousness, but not this way. And then you have authorities who are doing the same thing, saying, yes, the protests are part of our national fabric. They're part of who we are, and we would never suppress those. But we have to do it nonviolently. We have to find that, that sanity in the middle and so beyond all the initial reactions that we have as we really take in the breadth and the scope of what's going on here, how do we respond? We can't help reacting. But after we take a breath, how do we respond? You know, from our seats here in the peanut gallery, there's really not much we can do concretely to change anything. But how do we respond? I'm thinking... At least can we be another one of those voices that is calling for sanity? Another one of those voices that is standing between the poles, standing in that middle ground, and calling us back into this middle space where we need to be. We've been talking about liminal space. We've been talking about staying in the threshold and in the doorway. 
what more can we say about that than staying between the poles, staying in that place where we can see everything that is going on. We can hear the voices of everyone who is speaking and formulate our response accordingly based on what's actually there and not just our knee-jerk reactions. Can we be calling for justice and reform, but also for nonviolence, seeing all the sides, but also seeing the pain of the individuals who are being affected most by this, and responding out of that empathy, out of that connection? And can we continue to call out? Can we continue to keep that voice going, even when we realize no one is listening? Who's listening to us, right? I mean, you can post on Facebook or you can post on Twitter if you want to, but is anyone really listening? But whether they're listening or not, our voice matters. What we say matters because we are part of this fabric. And if we are one more voice crying from the wilderness that is trying to bring us back to sanity, that is calling from that sacred middle, then that adds up to something. At least we're no longer part of the problem. And what we are doing is creating that open door, keeping alive that possibility that there really is change for us in the wings. Because if it's possible for us as an individual from the inside out, then it's possible for all of us. Can we lead the way? You know, can we be, we be the one that people draft after? Can we continue to do that and not get weary in the well-doing even if no one's listening. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Bible is the most unsatisfying book ever written unless you approach it in a certain way, in a very special way, Thomas Merton's words. We went through some difficult passages of the Bible to kind of illustrate that, how difficult these passages are, how even morally and ethically unsatisfying they can be if we're just reading them from a literal point of view. But if we dig down deeper into the spiritual truths. Remember we talked about the fact that the Bible is primarily a spiritual book, that the physical details that are being related in the Bible are meant to convey, support, illuminate spiritual truths and principles, and not the other way around. Not the physical, not the physical details didn't happen, but they were there in, in a kind of a second position. Because what's really important is for us to get these things into our hearts and to understand. We talked about all that. And then I had someone who contacted me during the week and said, yeah, those passages were difficult, but there's one that has really been difficult for me. And he said, it's in John 14, and it's where Jesus says, if you believe in me, then you will do the things that I do and even greater things than these. He said, that one has always tripped me up, always been difficult for me. Well, here we go. If the Bible is primarily a spiritual book, where is our head going to go when we hear Jesus say, these things you see me do, you're going to do? We're thinking the miracles, aren't we? Right off the bat. Walking on water and healing people and casting out demons, that's the first place we're going to go. But is that what Jesus' primary message was to us? Was that really what he was about and what he was teaching us and showing us? When he said, they will know that you're my followers, by your love. And what he was primarily doing was showing us how to love. He was showing us how to stay in that vulnerable position, to stay in that broken position that allowed him to be connected to everyone wherever they are on that spectrum, to meet them where they were, to see their need, and to intimately be able to connect with it, 
That was what Jesus was talking about. Obviously, staying in that middle place, staying on the threshold, staying in that liminal space from which he could see all sides, from that vantage, be able to really see whether they were part of his camp or whether they weren't, to have an equal and undifferentiated love and concern and connection with everyone, even if he needed to deal with them in different ways. This is who Jesus really was, loving all sides and making choices from that center space where he could see everything and making choices that were the the best possible for everyone who was going to be concerned and not just for his side, quote-unquote, not just for the Jews. In all of this, of course, it always brings back images of Martin Luther King, I would think, for most of us, especially if we were alive when he was alive and doing the amazing things he did in the 60s. But I thought it would be good for us to remind ourselves a little bit of what he said. Back in the 60s, I mean, Jim Crow was alive. Civil rights was just a vapor. It was a a, a wish list. And here he was leading the vanguard of this movement. To have a leader like that, we were so fortunate to have a leader like that of the civil rights movement. I mean, God, give us a leader like that now who can stand in that liminal space, stand in that middle place, and still speak with the conviction that he had. A couple things that he said. In spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. In spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. We adopt the means of nonviolence because our end is a community at peace with itself. We will try to persuade with our words, but if our words fail, we will try to persuade with our acts. Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence. When it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of us, for from his views we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. Don't you love that line? The wisdom of the brothers who are called our opposition. He calls them brothers. Those who would be on the other side of this divide. Talk about standing in liminal space. That paragraph couldn't any more illustrate what we're talking about, of staying in the doorway, in the threshold between worlds, between camps, between sides that are so pitched and, and so adamant. And yet here he is, yeah? To see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of us, and to grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. Nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon which, cu- which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. It is a sword that heals. I have tried to offer my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. Nonviolence is absolute commitment to the way of love. Love is not emotional bash. It is not empty sentimentalism. It is the active outpouring of one's whole being 
into the being of another. Did you hear that one? It is the active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. How many times have we talked about love not being a feeling, not being a behavior, but being the identification with the beloved? And the way he puts it, it's saying the same thing. The active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. World peace through nonviolent means is neither absurd nor unattainable. All other methods have failed. Thus, we must begin anew. Nonviolence is a good starting point. And isn't it ironic that many of the, the violent protesters are saying that all the nonviolent methods haven't worked, and so they have to resort to violence. But he says, all other methods have failed. All the violent methods have failed. Thus, we must begin anew. Nonviolence is a good starting point. This is the voice of passionate conviction. How can you see it any other way? His beliefs are so deep that he staked his life on it. He gave his life for it. He has a definite point of view. There is no unequivocating. There is no ambiguity about what he believes and how he believes it and how deeply he believes it. Nothing indecisive about the man. Everything is perfectly clear about his goals, what he expects from his country for his people, but at the same time, he stays in that liminal space. He stays in that doorway, standing in the middle space, seeing all sides. Another voice crying in the wilderness that through nonviolence, honoring everyone while still working for his people. This is what Jesus did. Honored everyone while working for his people. He said, my mention is to the lost sheep of Israel, but it included anyone who was standing in his space at any given time. Martin Luther King is saying the same thing here. Now, it doesn't mean that violence is never appropriate. I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus was extolling pacifism. In defense of violence perpetrated on us or another, yeah, it may be just inevitable that we're going to need to protect ourselves violently if necessary, but not using violence ever as a preemptive attack, no matter how great the cause is, to use violence to achieve it is going to be antithetical. The means we use must match the ends that we seek. That's what he's saying here. We adopt the means of nonviolence because our end is a community at peace with itself. If we use violence, we're not going to come up with a community that is at peace with itself. But even as we try to weigh when violence is the appropriate measure in terms of defense and when it's not, that's liminal space too. That's standing again in the middle, bringing your whole being to each moment and making decisions based on what is really there and not some imported one-size-fits-all solution that never fits anyone. Jesus is saying that we can do this. We can do this. He did it, and now he's saying that we can do it too. How do you think we're doing so far? And how in the heck are we supposed to get there, I suppose, is the question that we need to ask ourselves. As I mentioned, today is Pentecost. I believe that Pentecost is the story of how we get there how we get to that place where we are doing what Jesus did and whatever he meant by greater things than these. But 
Pentecost is how we are going to be getting there if we are willing to read the passages scripturally, read the passages spiritually, and not just physically. So first of all, what's Pentecost? Well, literally the word from the Greek means just 50th. That's all it means. But it is equated with the Hebrew feast of Shavuot. Shavuot is also the feast of weeks because the Jews, it was always connected to Pesach, to Passover, and it was connected by seven weeks. So 49 days plus one because you started on the second day of Passover, which is an eight-day festival. That's absolutely clear, isn't it, to you all? Absolutely. So you got Pesach. On the second day of Pesach, you start counting Seven weeks, 49 days. On the 49th day, which is the 50th day from the start of Pesach, you got Shavuot. So that's why it's called weeks. But what in the world's going on here? And why is it even significant to us, especially as Christians, as followers of Jesus? The Jews had three, what they called Shalosh Regalim, which were three pilgrimage festivals. These were festivals where all of the Jews, while the temple still stood, were obligated to go back to Jerusalem and make their sacrifices and and perform the rituals at the temple, at the altar of the temple. And the first was Pesach. All of these festivals originally were agricultural festivals because the people lived and died by their crops, and so these festivals were so important to them. Later, they got overlaid with more spiritual significance. Pesach occurs in the early spring. It was the time of the barley harvest. Barley is the first crop to ripen in in Judea, in Israel. And so the barley crop would be harvested in the early spring, and the Pesach festival would celebrate the harvest. This was their means of survival. But later, it was overlaid that it also celebrated their exodus from Egypt, their liberation as a a true people under Moses. And then 50 days later, in the early summer, is when the, the wheat ripened, and they harvested the wheat. And so Shavuot was the festival of the gathering and the harvesting of the wheat. Later on, it was overlaid on Shavuot that it was also the celebration of giving the law, First there was the Exodus, and then when they got to Sinai, Moses went up to Sinai and got the law. And this is considered really the birth of Israel as a sovereign nation. And then in the fall, in late, uh, late September, early October, right before the first rains come in the winter in, in Israel, there was the festival of the ingathering, is what they called it. It's called Sukkot. And the ingathering, there's really no harvesting that happens at that time. But the process of, of making the grain into flour that baked the bread, that was a, you know, the, the staple of their lives, uh, was a long and labor-intensive process that literally took them all summer. And they had to de- get it done under dry conditions. They had to get it done before the rains came or the, the, the seed could rot and all sorts of things could happen that would spoil the flour that they were trying to make for their bread. And so if they got everything done, Sukkot was a celebration of the ingathering. Haga Asif is what it's called, the feast of the ingathering, when they finished processing and everything was ready for the beginning of winter and the first rains. That's Sukkot. But it was also called booths or tabernacles because it was meant to celebrate the 40 days of wandering in the wilderness of the people with only God to sustain them. So it celebrated their dependence on God. And so you see these three large festivals, these these, um, pilgrimage festivals, 
We're also taking the people through the liturgical year and taking them through a history lesson uh, of, of who they were as a people under God. So Shavuot is the one that we're talking about because that's also called Pentecost in the Greek. What you would do on the second day you would, of, of uh, Passover, you would take an omer of barley and sacrifice it on the altar or give it to the temple priests. And omer is just a standard measure. And then on the second day, you would start counting. This is day one of the omer, day two of the omer, all the way to 49. They call it the counting of the omer. And then on Shavuot, you would take an omer of wheat to the temple and offer that as a sacrifice. And so between the two omers is this time of the counting. And so Shavuot is part of the wheat, it's part of the law, and the time between Easter and Pentecost is identical with this. It's the same 50 days. In that first year after the crucifixion, Jesus was raised on the third day, and then he spent 40 days on earth before he ascended to heaven. And then there were 10 more days that completed the cycle, completed the order to 50. And so this is the period that we're talking about here. Jesus alive among the people for 40 days and then 10 more days. And during that time, the disciples had scattered. They had gone back home to the Galilee. They had scattered wherever that they lived. And then right before Shavuot is to begin, Jesus calls them back. Right before his ascension, he calls them back. Acts 1, if you want to read about this, brings them back into Jerusalem to give them some final instructions. And one of the instructions was, stay here. Stay here until something happens. Wait until something happens, basically. If any of you know anything about a Quaker meeting, that's what they do. The Quakers all get together, and they sit in a room silently with nothing going on, and they wait until something happens, until the Spirit moves them. Basically, Jesus is saying the same thing. Wait here. Don't go, right? So let's read what actually happens in Acts 2, starting right at verse 1, to get a sense of what Jesus was asking them to wait for. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? You have to understand, Galileans were the rubes. They were the ones on the other side of the tracks. And here they are speaking in all these tongues. And why were all these tongues present? Because it was a pilgrimage festival. So Jews from all over the eastern Mediterranean were descending on Jerusalem to be there for Shavuot. And here they're speaking. They're, they're hearing their own tongue. Uh, how is it that each of us hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. That'll be about 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, a Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who is this guy, and what has he done with our Peter? Who is this guy? This is not the same Peter that we know. This is not the Peter who denied Jesus. This is not the Peter who went home to go fishing again and couldn't recognize Jesus when he saw him on the shore. This is not the same Peter who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was being arrested, pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of Caiaphas, the high priest, to be rebuked by Jesus. What did he say to him? If you live by the sword, you die by the sword, almost. If you draw the sword, you will also die by the sword, he said. And in, God, in John's gospel, he heals the servant's ear. Even then, Jesus is telling him, violence only begets more violence. Never peace. Never the aim to which we are attuned. It'll never go there. But Peter still doesn't understand. What happened to Peter between Easter and Pentecost? We really need to know. Because this doesn't just end and begin with Peter. It's about our lives as well. If we take to heart what John said in the 14th chapter, that if we're really following Jesus, we can do the things that Jesus did. How did Peter get there? What was Pentecost to Peter? Whatever happened to Peter in that period, in that 50 days, was unlike anything that had happened before in his life with Jesus. I mean, think about his relationship with Jesus. Think about what he did. He first meets him out of the blue, right? But there's something in his spirit that quickens when he sees Jesus. There's something that when Jesus asks him to follow him, that he knows that he needs to do this. Something compelled him to drop his nets where they were, which is symbolic of leaving the life that he had, everything that was familiar to him at that time, and follow Jesus into a radically different lifestyle into a radically different space and way of living life. He becomes a Talmud. He becomes a follower in a way that we have no 
we have no an analog in our language for a Talmud. Someone who literally gives up everything that they are and imprints themselves with the master. Consciously, intentionally trying to imprint the master on them as if to clone themselves to the master, to become who the master is. That is the idea of a Talmud, a follower, a disciple. He watches, he listens, he learns, he lives with Jesus, eats and breathes with Jesus 24-7 for years, and mentally agrees with everything that Jesus is saying. He is the one who, when asked the question, is praised by Jesus. Who do people say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You know? Do you want to go anywhere else? To whom shall we go, Lord? You are everything to us. He mentally agreed. He mentally understood these things. But at the same time, he's still among the others, jockeying for, permission, for positions of power as they realize that it's coming to a, a fruition here, that Jesus' kingdom is going to be established, and he still understood it as a physical kingdom. And he's with the rest of them, you know, trying to get that seat of power next to Jesus to be the one he doesn't understand. And then when he is pressed after Jesus is arrested, he denies him, denies him with a curse, an imprecation to make the point, I don't know him because he's terrified both before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion. He is hiding in his room. He doesn't believe Mary when she comes and says that the tomb is empty, that she has seen the risen Lord. And he is slow to open his eyes to that possibility, doesn't recognize him. But over time, his eyes are slowly beginning to be opened in some way that we don't understand and is not really spoken of in Scripture. But we realize that it is a time period. It isn't instantaneous. It's a time period. Jesus has told him and told all of his followers, it's to your advantage that I go. And they couldn't figure that one out. It didn't sound like to their advantage. They were clinging to him. They needed him. He was everything to them. He was everything that they had imprinted on and everything that they were counting on to take them where they thought they wanted to go and needed to go and were promised to go. It's to your advantage I go so that the helper may come. The helper, God's spirit, wasn't there before and somehow was going to be there after that's not possible. Of course that's not possible. God's Spirit is everywhere all the time. God's Spirit precedes us, preceded the creation of the world. How in the world could the Helper come and didn't come before? That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's an idiomatic way of speaking. It's a Hebrew idiom to speak that way. But that's not what he means. Of course, Spirit was already there. But Peter was not ready to receive yet. How was Peter to be made ready? John the Baptist talks about the fact that he was baptizing with water, but one was coming who had baptized with fire and with spirit. He's talking about two different levels of baptism. He says, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm baptizing here with water. I'm the one who starts the process. Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, talks about two baptisms as well, one in water and one in spirit. And the second baptism that he talks about in spirit is what he calls being born again. He equates that. And he says, 
Unless you are born again, you can't enter the kingdom. You can't go where I'm going. You can't experience the kind of freedom that I'm talking about. You can't experience this ability to stand in the middle space and see all sides and love all sides and yet still have an agenda, still have the the fire to move forward in the direction that you believe is right. Peter was baptized with water, possibly by John, possibly with Jesus, maybe with by Jesus. And that was his declaration. That was his dedication to moving on a new path. This is where his life radically changed, when he dropped his nets and he moved into this new life and he stuck with it. It's literally repentance. What does Jesus say? Repent, believe the gospel, the good news. He changed his direction. He went in this new way of life. But he was still following external commands. He was still following external structure. He was still looking at Jesus as imposing that structure, imposing those commands, and he was following them. And it's a necessary first step. But it's only the beginning of our journey. To be focused outward, to be focused on something outside of yourself that is going to, what, save you, guide you, There's something that Jesus is trying to get us to understand that there is another stage after that. There is another step after that. And when the outward focus of faith is removed, that is when we start to realize that there is something deeper. That is when we enter the wilderness. That is when we enter the disorientation. When that outward focus is removed, and it always will be, life will present inevitable opportunity for the outward focus of your faith to be removed, whatever it happens to be. And there are infinite varieties on that. For Peter and for the followers of Jesus, it was Jesus himself. He was the outward focus of their faith. He was who they grabbed onto. He was whose coattails were going to drag them into the places of power as they understood it. But when Jesus was removed, they had to deal with faith on a different level. Now, I'm sure there were many of them who just doubled down and found another external object of their faith. Maybe they returned to, to rabbinical Judaism. Who knows what they did? But those who pressed forward had to look inward instead of outward to find that spirit, to find the helper that Jesus promised. A whole different direction of looking. We talked about Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's external object of faith. Isaac had to be removed. That's why he was ordered to kill Isaac, to sacrifice his son. Now, he was stopped before doing it because it wasn't that Isaac needed to be killed. It was Abraham's object of faith needed to be moved from outward to inward. And then he found his legacy. Then he found his multitude of progeny in spiritual faith, not in literal blood. And the Hebrews themselves Moses was their external object of faith, and he needed to be pulled from them before they entered the promised land. Jesus' death toppled everything that Peter thought he knew, thought he understood, and thought that he was following. But as he continued on, he slowly realized that Jesus was alive, but in a different way. He could walk through walls now. He wasn't the same as he was before. And then he was eventually pulled completely from his sight. And so it's as if the safety net of faith gets thinner and thinner and more and more transparent until it looks like there's nothing there anymore. 
St. John of the Cross, a medieval Spanish mystic, calls it the dark ray of faith, that it gets more and more pure, more and more transparent until you can't see it anymore. This is the image that those who have persisted and moved through that wilderness have found. What lies between Easter and Pentecost? Pentecost is the moment of that second baptism of fire and spirit, but it's a gradual one, not necessarily instantaneous, where we realize we're no longer following exterior laws and structure, but now it has become, as James says, the law of liberty, following our heart, but a heart that is completely given over and connected to God's heart. So even as we follow our heart, we are still following this law of love, this connection, this scene from the center place. Between Easter and Pentecost, between the first and second baptism, or maybe between the first and second halves of life, as we've been talking about in here, is that wilderness, that wilderness period. It's living with the trauma of the loss of the exterior objects of our faith. And people who experience this loss, the ones that are hollowed out by it, cleared out by it, they can give up and return to some new form of security if they want to. But if they don't do that, they can move inward to the unseen God and let that unseen God be enough and sustain them without the external object of faith that they needed before. It's like the training wheels coming off the bike to allow us to continue to move deeper and deeper into this connection with God that Jesus says is like the wind. Remember? The Spirit's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going, but you can see the effects of it in your life. But there's no edges. There's nothing to hold on to. Can we move into that place, into that deeper space where the connection is absolutely pure? Can we learn to stand in the middle Again, on the threshold, seeing all sides of life, loving everyone that we meet on any side of any divide that our human minds can concoct between ourselves. The second baptism puts us squarely in this liminal space, into the doorway between this and that, free to pass to either side, just as Jesus passed between walls after his resurrection one with spirit, completely connected with spirit. Pentecost is the story of how we get to the place where we can do what Jesus did and possibly greater things in some way. To love everyone as ourselves, to love everyone in the way that we love ourselves, to treat everyone as we want to be treated, no matter how much we disagree with them is what Pentecost can bring us to, to see past everything that makes us different all the way to the one thing that makes us the same, our identity in God's spirit. But we have to be willing to let go of all the things that we cling to, central in Jesus' teaching. Now this idea of the tongues of fire, as if we're waiting for a day, a moment in our life when the tongues will appear and the mighty wind will rush through and shake our building to its foundations. The fact of the matter is, look carefully. There's a tongue of fire over your head 
right now. It always was there, and it can't be anywhere else. And it's as bright as the sun if you will choose to see it. The Spirit is here. The Spirit is now. The Spirit is within and among and in our midst. And it can't get any more Pentecost than it is every single instant of your life. But it's up to us to be ready. It's up to us to be ready to let go and move into that space. That space that looks like there's no visible means of support. And yet all the support of eternity is there waiting for us if we're willing to fall in. This is Pentecost. This is available right here, right now, and not just today. Don't worry if you miss today. It's okay. Pentecost is tomorrow and the day after and this afternoon and tomorrow morning. It's always Pentecost. And it's always Palm Sunday. Jesus is always riding in. There's always the moment that we can let ourselves fall into this space if we're just ready to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this liturgical feast day that reminds us of how much that you have given us, of how you've held nothing back from us ever, that you are completely available to us at all times. Make us more and more ready to receive you, Lord. Make us more and more cleared out so that we can take in more and more of you, to be more and more overtaken by your desires and your pleasure and your delight so that we can just practice that as well as if it were our own, because it will be. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to be one more tongue of fire in a world that seems so dark, to be one more positive spark that the world absolutely needs. Help us to be able to positively influence and to love the people that are in our path. And if we can't convince them by our words, to show them by our actions what it really means to stand in that middle space and love everyone who comes into contact. That's what we want, Father. We pray for our nation. We pray for so many people who are being hurt over and over again. Give them the peace of your presence. Let them know that they are not alone. And help to dull the hatred that is tearing us apart with a sense that we really are all the same underneath if we're just willing to go deep enough. Father, thank you for this and for everything that you do for us and for your love. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I almost forgot what we do next. Oh, I remember. You can all stand if you want to, and if you're at home, wherever you are, you can stand if you want to, and if there's someone there that you can take real hands or just take virtual hands, but imagine all our hands extended and connected as we say, whose Father? Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Have a great rest of Sunday. Don't forget, Tuesday night at 6.30 online, Wednesday night 6.30, and then 10 o'clock again on Sunday. Have a great week.